This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material Marginalia written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes that which are, are incidental, incidental or additional to the main topic. The main topic in the margin of a book. Karen Tucker's novel, Be Wilderness, is a powerful read. Set in rural North Carolina, the book explores drug addiction through the story of Irene and her friend Lucille, or Luce. Irene leads the reader through their world, through her present, through her memories, and even through her Reddit conversations. The book isn't so much a wild ride as it is a consciousness-inducing downward spiral. I recently spoke with Karen Tucker about the book and her journey to write it. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Would you mind giving us a brief description of Bewilderness? Like, how, how did you pitch it? I don't know if I recall exactly how I pitched it, but the way that I've started talking about lately is it's the story of two food servers in rural North Carolina who find themselves caught up in the spiral of sobriety and substance abuse after one of their friends fatally overdoses. And can you talk to me about the title? Because, you know, when I read a book and I come upon the origin of the title, I, you know, I become really smug and very proud of myself, but I don't recall reading anything about bewilderness. Can you talk to me about its meaning and, and its, you know, choice as a title? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. I was probably in the earliest weeks of drafting the novel, I would say within the first three or four weeks. And one of my um, colleagues at the time, poet Kava Akbar, posted a Gwendolyn Brooks poem somewhere on social media. It's called First Fight, Then Fiddle. And it's essentially a poem about how we need to take political action before we can maybe relax and enjoy our art or, or not that art. I'm, I'm sure I'm misinterpreting this. Kava <laughs> <laughs> is brilliant and could talk far more about this, but, but it's, it's saying, you know, we as artists sometimes are like, Oh, I'm writing my book. I'm, I'm doing enough. I don't think we're doing enough just by writing our books or, you know, telling our stories we actually have to get out and, and, and be in the streets, essentially. First fight, then fiddle. And there's a line in the poem um, that goes, bewitch, bewilder. And for whatever reason, my, it felt like an unresolved note to me in the way that my brain resolved it was bewilderness. And I was like, how did, where did that come from, <laughs> bewilderness? I can work with this. And then I was in a novel writing workshop at the time and I titled my first submission, wilderness even though none of that imagery was present at the time but just the title was it, it, it like worked on me and and people in the in the workshop responded to it someone said I wish I had that title I'm like well then I'm not gonna let it go it's <laughs> now mine and and so it came to be and I ended up writing my way so that the the in, some of the imagery in the book supports the title I don't know if that imagery would exist had I not come up with the title first but that is how it came to be. Where did this book begin for you? Was it a story about friendship? Was it a story about addiction? I mean, what was the initial idea? Because you covered, there are so many things that are covered in this book, but I'm wondering, you know, what made you first think there's a novel here? One of the things that's been helpful to me as a writer is to think of stories, not as I'm writing a story, but I'm writing stories. 
it sounds like like you're giving yourself more work, but you're actually giving yourself less work when you, you know, include multiple stories. Then when one of them seems to be floundering or this tension is sagging, you can move to something else. And it certainly seems to echo how our lives work, the many, many threads. So I began writing this novel in January of 2017. When I was in grad school, I went back to grad school as an older person. And while I have made some really wonderful friends there, I also felt quite lonely being considerably older than many of my peers. And I wasn't always invited to the parties. I didn't realize at the time when I was writing this book um, about friendship, how that happened but looking back I understand that I created loose I think because I was so very lonely and wanted a friend and yes the friendship friendship in the book is imperfect and flawed as are many of my friendships even my best friendship is imperfect as I guess they all are so that came to be and certainly addiction I mean I would be surprised if anyone listening to this hasn't had some experience with a friend or family member, whether it's with alcohol or pills or, or um, you know, prescription medication or, or something that, you know, more illicit. For me, it was present and, because, you know, and then, but then people will say, well, it is, it is everywhere, but not everyone chooses to write about it. Why did I write about it? I think I had something to learn. And again, I didn't realize until after the book had gone to my editor that a beloved family member was caught up in it far more deeply than I ever imagined. And in fact, almost died this January and was revived by Narcan, which is something that I'm very interested in increasing access to. For people who don't know, Narcan is a prescription medication that all you do is it's a nasal spray and it can revive someone who's ODing on an opioid. Had Narcan not been present, this person might not be here. Had the paramedics not been able to get there in time, this person might not be here. I think I wrote the book maybe somewhere in myself understanding that I need to know more about this. I feel that if I had not written this book, my relationship with this person would have been really damaged after this incident. Having written this book and you know, un come to terms with my own biases, hope, worked through them as much as I could, confronted you know, some of the judgments that I think many of us bring to people who experience substance use disorder. Because of that, I have a good relationship with this person. And that means everything. And so you say you you wrote the book first. So I mean, I learned so much about about drugs by reading your book, you know, pills, street drugs, pharmaceuticals, meetings, rehab centers. And, you know, I, I'm wondering if you could talk to me a little bit more about your research. I mean, what kind of a deep dive did, did this require? Some writer advice that we'll often hear is write what you know, but I think possibly writing advice that is of even greater value is write what you want to know. I wanted to understand more about this, even before I knew how much its tentacles were in my own life. I wanted to understand it. So the way that I had to do it, because this is, you know, so criminalized, 
is I had to turn to anonymous message boards and Reddit was a big part of that research um, where people can talk frankly about what they crave, how well they're doing, how they're, if they're at risk of slipping, oh, look what I got to, I mean, the range is everything. I want to ask about Reddit in a minute, but um, I also, and it does feel very strange to ask an author about a book on drug addiction, if they brought any personal experience to the book, but I read an an interview that you gave where you talked about um, how the book exists because of some something that happened to your father and your mother. Can you talk to me about that? Or do you want to talk to me about that? I'll, yeah, I'll talk to you about that. I mean, I, my father died um, when I was in my late twenties, which is later than some people. But at the time I still felt very isolated by that experience and it was completely shocking to me. It was um, one of these late night phone calls that you never ever want to get. Um, and he died because of being in a low income circumstance, not having medical insurance in his sixties and had to go to the VA hospital. He's a vet and the VA hospital gave him terrible care and he perished because of it. He would be, he would have lived longer, um, years longer had the VA, you know, taken care of (laughs) veterans the way that they should. So that, I didn't come to writing until after my father died. I I think had my father lived, I might not have become a writer. I don't know. But that, that led me to, that trauma led me to, I can't hold whatever's happening inside of me. This little body is not enough. Something needs to come out. And I started by taking a writing workshop, you know, at, at a university in town. I dropped out of college. I was waiting tables. I still don't have an undergraduate degree. Even though I have since gone on and earned graduate degrees, they let me in despite my sketchy background. Um, So yeah, the loss of my father um, and my, you know, my mother's health isn't great, but I would say um, that character is, is more fiction than not in the book. I wanted to talk a little bit about the structure of the book. Can you talk to me about your choice of perspective? We're, we're heard, we are told the story um, from Irene's point of view. Is that right? That's right. Yes. So yeah, it's written first person point of view from Irene's perspective. Um, for me, I think point of view is generally just instinctive. I don't think I've ever started a project and switched it halfway through or partway through. I just kind of go with it. I tend to love first person um, because I think it's really, it's it's full of tricks. As a, as a baby writer, I used to believe that first person narration was the most intimate way to go. And now that I have worked in first person for quite some time, I believe that it's the least intimate point of view in that first person narrators, you know, as we all do when we tell our story, as I'm doing right now, we spin it, (laughs) we spin it, maybe not even consciously or, or, or we're trying so hard to be as sincere as possible at times. And that desire, what, you know, it it can never be right that there's always going to be a filter. So that was fun for me to play with, especially when you have a character who is very needy, who has a great deal of shame. There are many opportunities for this first person narrator to spin her story. 
um, at times she's trying to be very sincere and, and forthright and, and honest even with herself. And there are plenty of times when she deceives herself and when she deceives people she loves more than anything. So that, that was just fun to like try to tell the one story and then have the shadow story running beneath it that readers could go, oh, I see what's going on here. This is happening, but this is what Irene thinks is happening or this is what she wants us to think. I wouldn't go so far as to call it unreliable. I think that's a really fraught term and it wasn't my intention when I crafted the novel, but I do think that there are multiple stories at work and Irene's doesn't always track with the, the, the primary one. You know, there were a couple of chapters that were departures from that first person narrative. And one was the Reddit conversation, even though Irene was participating in that conversation. Um, so I want you, would you mind talking to me about that? And also the structure of the first chapter in part two. And it was, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. <laughs> so as much as I love first person narration, it has its limitations. And uh, the biggest limitation is what author Juno Diaz, I heard once referred to as the tyranny of first person narration. They hog the mic. <laughs> it's my story. So how do you get you know, readers to understand a fuller picture. How do you get other voices into your novel? For me, that was that was perpetually on my mind as I did research through Reddit. I was like, oh, well, if Jennifer Egan can do a PowerPoint chapter in a visit from the Goon Squad, then I have permission to do a Reddit chapter in my book. So the Reddit chapter gave me the opportunity to have multiple voices enter and, and talk about things that Irene herself would not have the capacity to understand at that point in her, in her story. So people can correct her, people can call her out, people can also give her terrible advice. So she's not at the bottom, she's maybe in the middle. So people are like, know less than her in that thread and some people know more. So in a way it became like a kind of a fun puzzle it was also a shift from the, the chapter that precedes it is pretty intense. You know, I think for me as a writer, I needed to, let's take a pause. <laughs> let's 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 uh, go to one of those other story threads that I'm always so grateful for. So it, it was a nice way to step away a bit from what had just happened before diving back in. Irene is a white narrator. She does not at the beginning of the book understand that that has helped her. Black and brown communities are, are even more affected by the opioid crisis. And I think we white people don't always recognize or acknowledge that. Irene doesn't recognize or acknowledge that. But at the beginning of the novel, the Reddit chapter was an opportunity for her to have someone, hello, <laughs> explain that to her to a degree and other people chime in. By the end of the book, she recognizes her white privilege. So there was that. And then the second chapter, the, the first chapter of part two that you mentioned, I always wanted to do a, a do's and don'ts chapter. <laughs> I think they're really fun. Again, it was a way to just approach it a slightly different way to break up that tyranny of first person and also include some harm reduction principles, which I think are really important, while also honoring the truth of that tug, where even, you know, it, it, something in the in the brain chemistry shifts even though you know you are putting your life in, in considerable danger, especially these days when there's so much fentanyl everywhere, you still seek it out. So that gave me additional opportunities. I wanted to touch on something you said, you know, about the white privilege. And I read that you said with this novel, you were, quote, trying to chip away at persistent social stigmas and coax U.S. policymakers towards 
decriminalization while telling what I hope will be a great story. And this week, with your book in the back of my mind, I kept hearing on NPR that this is the 50th anniversary of the declaration of war on drugs, this war on drugs. But is any side winning this war? I mean, are there winners (laughs) at all with this war? Oh, absolutely. The Sackler family won. (laughs) Purdue Pharma won. Capitalism won. I'm pausing because I'm trying not to to get too upset thinking about who lost. People died. I mean, in 2020 alone, they say in the pandemic, we're, we're all under considerable stress and people are dying. Of a, of a of this you know from this global epidemic, twenty percent more people died of fatal overdoses. And again, that's when my family member almost died. Um, and yet, people became billionaires. Um, doctors were being bribed and paid considerable sums. In these rehab facilities. Affordable Care Act is incredible in that it allows people to stay on their parents' policies until age 26, but unscrupulous characters have taken advantage of that, and young people who are now on their parents' policies will be approached by a body broker to a 12-step meeting and seduced into coming to this rehab with all these false promises. When they get there, it's nothing like it, and then this, the rehab facility will bill the insurers tens of thousands of dollars. The war on drugs is being won, but by all the wrong people. You know, for years, for all these years, I've I kept I've heard the term enabler, but I don't think I fully understood it until I read this book. So many different layers. You made me think of one thing that I want to point out. Um, I don't think that I fully understand enabling by any means. I mean, this was so much of this book was me writing by the seat of my pants and going on instinct, but. What I do know is that one thing that's really bad is that we need some enabling, I think, in the medical community and that, look, if you're, if you're prescribed a pain pill because you hurt your back and for whatever reason, it, it doesn't happen for everybody, but for whatever reason, the pain pill that you've been prescribed, the opioid that really does help is legitimate medicine. It works on your brain so that you need it more. And then you start taking a little more frequently. And and then at some point your doctor's like, oh, you've been through this 30 day prescription in 17 days. You're abusing this. I'm going to have to cut you off. We think of that as, I mean, that practice is considered the right choice. And yet by cutting off someone who's already addicted, it puts them in great danger because they are already addicted. Now they're, oh, I mean, I don't think you go straight from trying to get a refill from your doctor straight down to, you know, the public park that everyone knows to avoid after dark, but you might say, look, (laughs) I'm in pain. My neighbor knows somebody, I know they know somebody. And then one thing leads to another and all of a sudden you're buying pills from a source that you can't trust that in 2021 is likely not what you think you're buying. I mean, the, again, the person that almost died didn't die from heroin, died from a, I saw the pills. They looked like real pills. They were fake presses. They were the exact pill that was mentioned in chapter two of the book. I mean, the whole thing is extremely spooky, but that's how people get, the doctor cuts them off when they most need the doctor's guidance and help. 
and then they are, you know, trying to get out of pain. I mean, I would say the one thing I learned about writing this book is that people take painkillers because they're in pain. It sounds overly simplistic, but maybe it's physical pain, maybe it's emotional pain, but who among us isn't in pain? I think if we can remember that, then maybe we're not gonna be so quick to cut off patients or to cut out family members when they experience it. I swear I had a phantom pain the whole time I was reading it. My knee hurt. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Um, and now people who, who have legitimate pain needs have a hard time getting that right. pain. My mom fell and broke six ribs in March. Oh, wow. And had a really hard time getting her pain under control because doctors were so reluctant to give her anything beyond Tylenol. So, you know, a theme that often arises in my book discussion groups is that some readers cannot like a book if they do not like the protagonist. And for the record, I am not one of those people. Um, and I read another one of your interviews that your favorite protagonists and people are sloppy and flawed. Can you um, talk to me about what attracts you to the sloppy and flawed? Humanity. <laughs> I mean, they're and I myself am absolutely flawed. I think, of course, we all are, but people who are more visibly flawed, who are sloppy in a way that we can see it, maybe they're just more fully themselves. There are fewer things I, I um, will avoid more than a saint. <laughs> and, of course, saints don't, don't walk among us, or at least I've yet to meet one. But plenty of people with real struggles and, and failures do. And that's who I want to talk to. Now, that willingness to, to be friends with someone who is willing to talk about it has led me into some lengthy conversations that I'm like, okay, I, I gotta go. But I will still always, you know, that's who I want to read about. That's who I want to have in my life and get to know who who is out there struggling and fighting and being open about it. I wanted to talk to you. You touched a little bit on your education, but I wanted to ask a little bit about that. So you hold a PhD in English and creative writing and an MFA in creative writing. Um, but you entered these programs as an older student. So you, you touched on it a little bit, but talk to me about that experience and, and what drew you. Was it the, the creative writing class that you took? Is that what got this started? I, well, I, it initially started with the death of my dad and wanting to, it, it, that which led me to writing some really terrible poems, which led my poetry teacher to say, well, you were the most improved student this semester, which I took as a terrible insult. <laughs> like I must have been so bad when I entered. I'm like, well, maybe poetry is not for me. I took a fiction course. I think I dropped the first one after week one because it was pretty expensive and, and week one I didn't, I just, I, it wasn't a good fit, but I tried again another semester and that one stuck and I took another one the next semester and that one stuck. And by that point I was reading all the message boards, poets and writers used to have pretty active message boards, they no longer do, but at that time I was reading the message boards trying to find my community of writers, I didn't know any writers at the time and someone said on there, well, some low residency place, um, some low residency programs will take you if you don't have an undergraduate degree. And when I read that, I was like, oh, 
because I only had two years of college behind me and I was waiting tables and, and I, I think I had maybe just paid off my student loans, which I had had, you know, I was still paying off two years of student loans without having a degree. And I, I didn't want to go to two more years of undergraduate, take on even more loans. But the fact that I could maybe potentially save myself two years of loans and go straight to grad school, I was like, I'll try. So I tried, I gave them the strongest portfolio I could and, and Warren Wilson, which is in Western North Carolina, let me in and it was the best experience. But then I went back to waiting tables. Um, I wrote a novel, got an agent, it didn't sell. It was extremely crushing. <laughs> Crying on the phone to my mom every night. And she's like, well, I'll go back to school. And I thought, well, I'll try. I wrote to 12 different PhD programs. Six of them told me, don't even bother applying with, you know, go back and get your undergraduate degree, then call us. But six said, okay, well, we'll consider your application. So scramble, get all the money together to apply. That itself is, you know, pretty prohibitively <laughs> expensive for many of us. Um, and I had, I was waitlisted one place and accepted at two places. And I went to Florida State. Um, and I'm really grateful. Yes, I have a PhD. And this novel was my dissertation. And I was not paid nearly enough as a graduate student. <laughs> I'm going to remind everybody of that. Pay grad students more. They are teaching your undergraduates. I taught undergraduates at Florida State for five years for less than $20,000 a year. Um, so that needs to be fixed too. But I did, I did get a job after, which has been life-saving is, is an exaggeration, but it feels like life-saving. We've talked about a lot, but like hardly anything, I mean, would like in detail about the book, but is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? I've heard from several people that they don't feel compelled to read a story about substance abuse because they don't feel as though they have a direct connection to it. I don't know. That, that, that is hard, I think, to hear. I think given how widespread the problem is, given how secretive people who have substance use disorder tend to be, chances are every single one of those people who believes that they don't need this book, they might actually be someone who needs it. I can tell you, I didn't know that I needed this book, even as recently as January when I'd already written it, I was outside on the sidewalk arguing with the paramedics. If you're resisting, whether it's this this story or any story, if you're resisting it, that might be worth interrogating. That was Karen Tucker, author of Bewilderness, which was published by Catapult. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.